Happy Sunday, West Village family. Happy Sunday. How's it going out there in internet world? Uh, my name is Chris. For those of you who don't know me, for those of you who are maybe new, checking us out, I'm one of the leaders here uh, at West Village. Uh, I love this church. I love you. I love being together, but I'm lonely. I'm so lonely. I'm in the front of an empty movie theater all by myself. And so here's what I'm going to get you to do to help me feel a little bit more like with people. Okay, I want you to I know this is where maybe you're watching this on your phone and this isn't going to work, but if you're not watching this on your phone, I want you to take your phone out right now, take it out of your pocket or off your table, wherever you have it, hold it up. And what I want you to do is I want you to actually, I shouldn't turn my back to, the, to y'all. I want you to uh, take a picture of yourself, a selfie, and then I'm going to get you to like post it right below whatever stream you're watching this on, post it in the, in the chat thread below. If you're on Facebook, post it there. If you can post on our uh, West Village uh, website, post it there, but post just to let me know you're there. Let me see your smiling face, even though I'm not going to get to see it till after anyway, but here, I'm going to do it right now with you. Okay. So go ahead, pull your phones out. Let's all do this together. Let's all be rude together. I'll turn my back to you. You turn your back to me. Okay, here we go. All right. Snap. Just one second. Sorry. Awkward moment here. Okay. Open up Facebook, West Village and post. Blammo. There we go. All right. All right. All right. How's it going, everybody? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to the book of Esther. We're in week three of the book of Esther. We are teaching verse by verse uh, through this book uh, and really just asking the question, like, what does it tell us about Jesus? And as we come to the book of Esther, uh, what I want to like kind of help us understand is that when we come to the Bible, not just the book of Esther, but the Bible in general, that there's really kind of two ways to read the Bible. There's the right way and there's the wrong way. Okay, let's start with the wrong way. What's the wrong way to read the Bible? The wrong way to read the Bible is to come to the Bible and say that uh, the Bible teaches that there's kind of two people in the world. There's good people and there's bad people. And you should be like the good people and you shouldn't be like the bad people. Uh, This is kind of like the religious way of understanding the Bible, that the characters in the Bible, the people that we come across, the stories that we read, these are given to us as examples of how to live our life. Some people might say, You've probably heard it said that this is the instruction manual for life. No good. Bad way to read the Bible. What's the good way? What's the right way to read the Bible? Well, the right way to read the Bible is this. There are two kinds of people in the world. There's bad people, and then there's Jesus. And it's Jesus' job to rescue, to save, to redeem, to heal, to restore all the bad and broken people, all the bad and broken things in the world. This is so important when we come to a book like Esther. Today, we're going to get introduced to three characters. We're going to meet Xerxes again. We're going to learn more about him. Finally, we're going to meet Mordecai and Esther. And our proclivity can be to come to a book like this and to hear a story like the one we're about to hear and say to ourselves, we need to be like Esther. We need to be like Mordecai. We need to be like the people in the Bible. And the answer to that is no, 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 not at all. As you'll see, as uh, you'll see as we jump into this, okay? So if you have a Bible, go to Esther chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Here is what Esther chapter 2 verse 1 says. It says later, we'll come back to that in a second. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Okay, so let's stop there. Let me just kind of set the scene here, okay? If you remember the last couple of weeks leading up to Esther chapter 2, King Xerxes' Uh, has been pitched to us as this larger-than-life character. He's this kind of high and exalted king. Functionally, the author of the book of Esther was trying to give us a picture of of an Xerxes who was indeed worshipped as a god. He was above the people. They worshipped him. He made decrees. People had to listen. He was this kind of big deal. Uh, And chapter 1 ends with Xerxes having a party, uh, bringing the entire empire together to celebrate him, to worship him, so that he can revel in his own glory. And the party ends with, uh, with Xerxes asking his wife Vashti to come to the party. But not just come to the party, come to the party naked and dance for all the guests. Now, I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a you know, professional marriage guy. I've been around the block a few times. I've been married for quite a while, done some weddings, done some marriage counseling. It's probably not a great idea. Dudes, not a great idea. This is not a good marriage practice for a husband to ask his wife to do this. But this is indeed what Xerxes asks Vashti to do. And Vashti, good gal, good gal, she's like, eh, 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 don't want any part of this. And so she ends up, through an edict of King Xerxes, getting expelled from the kingdom. 
And so Xerxes wakes up, and he's kind of remembering what's happened. Interestingly enough, the, you know, it says later, there's actually four years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. What happened in that four years, it wasn't just that this thing with Vashti happened, and four years later, here we find ourselves in that four-year span. Xerxes had led the Persian Empire to go out and, and try and take over the nation of Greece. He lost that battle in dramatic fashion, and he had come back to Persia with his tail between his legs, and here he is, like, sitting on his throne, like, just feeling bad for himself. He's kind of despondent and distressed and upset, and he wakes up and he remembers Vashti. And we kind of get this picture of a King Xerxes who's miserable. His life is like a, it's like a functional country music song, right? His wife has left him, the dog has left him, his truck is broken down, he's sitting on his front porch, and all he has is a bottle of Jack Daniels and a tattoo of Vashti on his arm, and he's just sitting there feeling sorry for himself. Why? Well, here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. When you live for your own glory, it always ends in misery. What did we see in chapter 1? We saw a Xerxes who was in constant pursuit of his own glory. It was about him. It was about his worship. It was about his own glorification. It was about his joy. It was about his satisfaction. It was about him feeling important. It was about him having all the glory. And where did it leave him? Right here, alone, sad, feeling bad for himself, miserable. Because whenever we pursue our own glory, whenever we pursue uh, the elevation of self, it always ends up in misery. So we have this picture of a Xerxes who was high and exalted, who was mighty, who's now here kind of at the rock bottom, if you will. He's kind of hit rock bottom, and, and now what's he going to do? Well, look at what it says in verse 2. It says, Then the king's personal attendants made a proposal. What's the proposal? Well, let, let, actually, just one second. Before we, we get to the proposal, here's the personal attendance, that could actually be translated uh, young men, young college-aged age or university-aged men, right? So here we have King Xerxes. He, he, he's down in the dumps, and, and what does he do? Does he repent? Does he come back to Jesus? Does he, does he like, you, you know, have this turn and where he starts to see others as more valuable as himself? No, no, no. He goes to a bunch of young guys to seek some advice, there's probably a sermon in there somewhere, but I'm not sure when you're in the position that Xerxes is in that you should ever go to college-age dudes and ask them for advice. Because look at what they say. This is crazy. You can't write this stuff. It just writes itself, right? You can't make it up. Here's, here's what they said. Uh, let's, let, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Uh, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. So here's what they say. Let's go out to, the, to, to, to the, the nation of Persia. Let's bring the most beautiful women into the palace, into the city where the citadel, which is the palace, into the city of Susa, which is where Xerxes is. And he says, let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch. We went over what a eunuch is last week, uh, who is in charge of the women and let her beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women, let the young woman rather, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So Xerxes in a bad place goes to some frat boys. He says, guys, I'm having an off day. What do you think? The frat boys come up with an idea. Let's start our own reality show. We'll call it the bachelor Persia edition. We'll go out and get a whole bunch of beautiful women. We'll bring them into the palace. You can have your way with them and then you will get to decide which one is the new queen? I mean, of course, that's the idea they come up with, right? Because young guys never have any good ideas. It's a good day for a young guy when he has pants on, asking for a good idea. That's above his pay grade. Look at what, look at what Xerxes says. It's okay to laugh. I was just joking. Okay, look at what Xerxes says. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. In other words, King Xerxes is a potato head. He's a potato head. He's had this whole run where he pursued his own glory. He's had this whole run where it's been all about him, all about his glorification, all about what he wants. 
Does he learn his lesson? No. He goes after more. He goes after more of his own glory. He goes after more for himself. He wants more wealth, more women, more power. And and here's the lesson for us, family. Here's the lesson for us, church. Whenever we pursue our own glory, it always ends with misery. It always ends with misery. What Xerxes should have done is he should have repented. What, What Xerxes should have done is he should have come to his senses and said, man, whenever I live for myself, it never ends well. It always ends in misery. Whenever I make myself the center of the story, whenever I make everything all about me, it always ends really, really bad. And we know this, don't we? Any of you out there who are married, if you're married, you know, put your hand up. You're probably sitting next to your spouse. I'm married. Uh, put, put your hand up. You know, I'm married. Okay, if, if you're married, then you know that this is the case, right? If you ever meet, like, people who aren't married, this is what they'll say. They say, young unmarried people tend to not say the wisest things. They will say things like, I can't wait until I get married. This is going to be the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. The only people who ever say anything like that are people who have never been married before. If you've been married before, then you know that it is not always the most amazing experience. You know if you take the marriage relationship and you make it all about you, you make it all about your glorification, you make it all about your contentment, you make it all about your preference and your enjoyment, how's that going to end? Not well. Man sleeping on the couch. Like, it's a bad scene. Uh, Just a couple days ago, I was hanging out with some of our high school students on Zoom, and we were having this conversation. I just felt like poking the bear a little bit. And so you you got all these young, idealistic, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And I said, there's no such thing as true love. No such thing. Doesn't exist. What are you talking about? I'm in love. We're in love. Everyone's in love. We all love love. I'm like, eh, doesn't exist. You only love each other because you don't know each other. When you get to know the person that you think you love, it's really, really hard. It doesn't really go the way you think it's going to go. There's going to be days where their breast stinks, their hair's messy, and you're just going to want to not do nice things to one another. Why? Because it's all about self. Whenever you make it about you, whenever you make it about your glory, your enjoyment, your contentment, how does it end? Misery. Some of you are parents right now. You're trying to watch a thing, and the kids are doing the thing, and there's kids, and ugh, ugh. Kids, they, they show you that whenever you make it about you, whenever you want to make it all about your glory, that it ends in misery. Some of us, we think having kids, that's going to satisfy us and fulfill us, and then we have them. The only people who say things like that are people who don't have kids, right? It's kind of like the marriage thing. Once you have a kid, what happens? Like, all your, like, visions of grandeur, all your dreams are dashed, all your hopes are taken away from you. You think you're going to raise these kids, you're going to homeschool them and teach them six languages and the violin, and they're going to learn to play music from ear, and it's, they're gonna, you're going to curate this little human that is going to grow up to be perfect and wonderful and joyous, and then they're born. They're born, and it's all gone. It's snatched. In the blink of an eye, they poop and they cry and they don't sleep and they have wills and sin is alive and well in their hearts. And you make it all about you and it ends in misery. It ends in misery. You look at Xerxes' life, he makes it all about him and it ends in misery. So what's the remedy? Well, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, uh, he had this line describing what the very essence of sin is. And he said, sin is uh, this is Latin. He said, humanity in curvatus. In other words, humanity turned in on itself. That, that the very essence of what sin is, is when a person is turned in on themselves. In other words, they, they seek self-glorification. Uh, you see, the reality is every single person seeks glory. Every other person is, is a worshiper. Everybody worships something. Even the, the hardest atheist who says there is no God and there is no supernatural and there is nothing outside of the tangible taste, touch, see, smell, you know, universe. They are worshipers. It's just who we are. It's the way we've been designed and made. And and Martin Luther's point is, is that when you seek your own glory, when you seek your own satisfaction, when you seek your own contentment, what that is, is it's you turning in on yourself. And the remedy to the brokenness that that comes with that is to turn your worship outward, to turn the glory that you give off or the worship that you give off outward, to find something outside of yourself 
who you will give glory to and who you will worship. And the Bible says that it's Jesus, that it's Jesus that we need to worship. It's Jesus that we need to live for. It's Jesus that we need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to, that he's the one who rescues and saves us, that whenever we try and rescue and save ourselves, we actually just make it worse. We make it more about us. We make it more about ourselves. And the remedy is to come to Jesus. The remedy is to repent and to turn to him. That's really what the word repent means. It means to change your mind or to change your direction. So you're no longer pursuing your own glory, but now you're pursuing the glory of Jesus. And there's something beautiful that happens when a person does this. In a sense, it's as if the pressure is now off. You no longer have to perform. You see, when we seek our own glory, when we seek our own satisfaction, it always leads to one of two places. It either leads to pride where we feel like we have done it. Look how good we are. Look at everything we've accomplished. We puff our chest out. We walk with our heads held high. We we look down our noses at everyone else because they haven't done as good as we have in being awesome. Failing to realize that pride in and of itself is the sin. That's the Xerxes we saw in chapter 1. But the other place that self-glorification leads to is despair. Despair in the sense that you recognize if you're honest, if anyone's honest with themselves, they they look at the reality of their life and they're like, yeah, sometimes I'm not the greatest spouse. Sometimes I'm not the greatest son or daughter. Sometimes I'm not the greatest neighbor. Sometimes I'm not the greatest parent. I don't measure up. I don't do a good enough job. And when it's all about you, when it's all about your glory, your glorification, because you fail to measure up, where does that leave you? It leaves you feeling despair, hopeless, helpless. in the gutter. Uh, The beauty of the Christian message is that it's not about your glory. You don't have to save yourself, but Jesus enters into the story and he rescues, he redeems, he saves. He's the hero. He's the hero. He's the one who deserves the glory. And what that does is it takes the pressure off of us having to save ourselves. We don't have to be Jesus. We can let Jesus be Jesus. And we get to follow him, love him, serve him, and worship him. So that's the first thing we see. Story goes on, though. Verse 5. We're going to meet, finally, finally, we're going to meet, not Xerxes, sorry. We're going to meet Esther, and we're going to meet Mordecai. So look at verse 5 with me. It says this. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon among those taken captive with, oh my goodness, look at that name. Here's the trick, fast and confident. Oh, that wasn't good. With the king of Judah, that's the second trick. If you can't read it fast and confident, you just skip it, make a cute little grin and hope people are gracious with you. All right, so we get introduced to Mordecai. And right out of the gate, we get this. Mordecai is one of the main characters, right? So we're going to hear about him. Uh, I think his name shows up in the book of Esther 52 times. In fact, if you were, go to, uh, go, if you were to go to Iran, which is uh, where this is all taking place, you would actually find Mordecai's uh, tomb site there. You could see where he is buried. And what we see in, in these sets of verses is we start to learn a little bit about who Mordecai is. First thing that we learn right here is that Mordecai was actually far away from God. Uh, Right here, the author of the book of Esther gives us a little bit of history about how Mordecai ended up in the Persian kingdom. We've we've kind of unpacked this, so I don't don't want to spend too much time on it, but the nation of Babylon took over the nation of uh, Israel, the the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom in, in the city of Jerusalem. They took all of God's people into captivity into the Babylonian Empire, and then uh, the nation of Persia, that was under King Nebuchadnezzar. Then the nation of Persia comes in under, under the king by the name of Cyrus, and they take over the Babylonians. Uh, at that time, some of God's people, because King Cyrus, he's actually the only, non, uh, the only pagan king who the Bible speaks well of. King Cyrus said to God's people, you can go back to Jerusalem, you can rebuild your temple, you can rebuild your city. And a whole bunch of God's people did that. But many of them, and, and you can read about those people in Ezra and Nehemiah, but many of them stayed right here in Persia. And that's who Esther and Mordecai 
uh, are, are with. They're with the, the Jews, the, the, the nation of Israel who chose to stay in the nation of Persia. Now, now here's why this is significant. It's significant because the city of Jerusalem is the centerpiece to the Jewish faith. At the center of the city of Jerusalem is the temple, and in the temple is where God's presence dwelt. And so to be in Jerusalem and to be near the temple and to be near the temple meant to be near God himself. And so this was a place that if you were like a devout, authentic follower of God, this is where you wanted to be. And so the people who stayed behind in Persia, the people like Mordecai, in a, in a sense, they were living in a, in a place of disobedience, disobedience to God's law, to his command, to his decree. Uh, so for Mordecai, what this would have meant uh, day in and day out is that he would have been breaking God's dietary laws, eating foods that were not permitted to be eaten, participating in festivals and festivities and celebrations that he shouldn't have been participating in. And so he functionally kind of had one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the nation of Persia, the Persian Empire, the Persian kingdom. You could liken him somewhat to like a cultural Christian. You know, he he goes to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe that's you, right? Well, that's Mordecai. Uh, That's the place he's in. He actually really likes the life that he has etched out for himself in the nation of Persia, and he doesn't really want to leave it behind. He's enjoying the comforts of the empire more than being in the presence of God. But that's not all we see. Look at what it says in verse 7. In verse 7, it says this, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, that's Esther, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So the second thing we learn about Mordecai, first thing, he's far away from God. Second thing is he's not that bad of a guy. He has this cousin, Esther, and she's an orphan, and he decides, I'm going to take her in. Now, in a few verses, we're going to see him make some questionable decisions about how to take good care of her. But at this point, for all intended purposes, we get this picture of Mordecai that he's like sort of religious and kind of a good guy. You know, I liken him to the classic West Coast Vancouver Island spiritual but not religious type person, right? He recycles, he drives electric, uh, he probably picks up after his dog at the dog park and doesn't leave it beside the dumpster but puts it right in the dumpster, goes to the odd church gathering from time to time, he probably follows Oprah, Bernay Brown on Twitter, retweets them, he's kind of sort of this pseudo-spiritual guy. He's not an atheist. He claims to be a follower of Jesus, but if you were to you know, really press him on that, the evidence wouldn't hold up in court. That's kind of what we're dealing with with Mordecai. What about Esther? We learn about her. Again, verse 7. I'll go back and read it again. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. That's, again, the, the Hebrew name for Esther, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her in as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So what do we know about Esther? Well, she is the main character. She's the main human character in this story. The book is named after her. Her name appears 55 times in this book. Similar to Mordecai, if you were to go to Iran, you could also find the place where she is buried. Interesting here in verse 7. Interesting. She has two names. She has a Hebrew name. She has a Jewish name, a religious name, and she has a Persian name. So which one is she? Well, she's both. She's both. You see, just like Mordecai, her her problem, the tension for Esther, the tension for Mordecai is... What does it mean to follow God, to be obedient to God while living in an empire where they don't worship the same God that we worship? And for all intended purposes, again, Esther, she's she's got her foot in the in the church, in the spiritual world. She identifies as 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 a follower of Jesus or a follower of God in the Old Testament. But yet, and as we will see very clearly in a few verses, she is very pagan. 
Her life is marked by the empire. She looks like them. She talks like them. She acts like them. She's conflicted. There's this reality that we have to wrestle with as followers of Jesus where where we, we desperately want to follow Jesus, but yet at the same time, the people of God are placed in an empire that doesn't know, love, and follow, and serve the same God that we know, love, and serve, and follow. Uh, and so the ways of our culture, the ways of the world that God has placed us in, just like Esther and Mordecai, it's very different. And we have this tension. Who are we going to be? How are we going to live? Which name, if you will, are we going to take? Who are we going to follow? Which, which ethic, which system of governance, not, not legal governance, not political governance, but governance of the heart, are we going to let have rule and reign in how we live our life? What determines the steps of our day? What determines how we live? Are we just living, you know, reading off the teleprompter of culture? And culture determines how we live, how we do marriage, how we do family, how we do money, how we do sex, how we do dating, how we do all these things. Is it, is it just us following, swimming with the current that culture is kind of rushing at us? Or, or do we actually take a step back and say, wait a minute, we, we don't want to be a part of the empire of the world. We want to be a part of the kingdom of God. See, there's this reality that we have to wrestle with that God's people are called to be set apart. Jesus prays this very prayer in John chapter 17. He prays, Father, I want you to keep them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. I want them to be in the world, but not of the world. To not take on the substance or the essence of the world. In other words, there needs to be this clear line, this clear delineation between a follower of Jesus and someone who isn't. I mean, right now in the moment we find ourselves in, I, I see opportunity for this to be so pronounced. I mean, obviously right now the world is in hysteria, right? And two of the greatest fears that I see when I just kind of look out at the landscape of what's going on when I, you know, my Twitter feed, my Instagram feed, my social, my Facebook feed, when I watch the news, here's what I see, two, two main fears loss of control, and death. We, we used to live under the illusion that we were functionally immortal and we had total control. And then one day, some guy in a market in Wuhan, China, decided he wanted a bat for a snack. And five, six weeks later, seven billion people's lives come completely undone. We realized in that moment that Control, it was an illusion. It was a myth. We thought we had it, but we, we don't. It's gone. And people are terrified. Uh, people are watching as, you know, the, the psychotic news, 24-hour psychotic news cycle just keeps ratcheting up numbers. This many infected, this many dying, blah, blah, blah. And we're all, like, losing our minds, terrified that we're going to die. We're looking at our own mortality and realizing that this could be a problem. What a moment for the people of God to say, we belong to a different empire. We belong to a different story. We serve a different king. We've always known that we don't have control. Why? Because we know the one who has total control, Jesus. Jesus demonstrates for us that he's in complete control all the time. Even the moments that look like he has absolutely zero control, he's fully in control. If you go back and look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, his life ends with him going to the cross. And just to put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' first followers, you've given up everything to follow him. He's claimed to be God. You've believed it. You're following him. You're serving him. You've given everything. And there he is hanging on the cross. What are you thinking in that moment? You're thinking he's a liar. You're thinking that he failed. You're thinking that this is all a sham. And yet what happens? In this moment where God looked like he was completely out of control, he takes that moment and he uses it to bring the most glory to himself. He uses that moment to redeem us, to rescue us, to save us from our sins, to hand over to us the gift of his grace and the gift of his righteousness. 
demonstrating that he's in full control. We can rest that even when it looks like everything is out of control, God still has us in his hand. And what comes right after the resurrection, or right after the, the crucifixion church? I told you already, but it's the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that just as Jesus went to the cross, was buried three days, and rose again completely physically alive, that is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, what Paul is saying to us that we get to hold on to is that this life is not the end. In the same way that Jesus rose, we too will one day rise, and so we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear it. And what an opportunity for us as the people of God living in the world who doesn't know what we know, who doesn't, who doesn't experience all that we experience, who doesn't know the Jesus that we know. We get to live out what we called a few weeks ago being a non-anxious presence in an anxious world where we can actually not just deliver a bag of groceries to a neighbor who is in need, but deliver hope. Deliver them the message of a Jesus who has full control and can help them overcome the greatest enemy of death, the greatest enemy of brokenness, the greatest enemy of sin. And just like Esther and Mordecai had to wrestle with what it meant to be the people of God in the, in the empire that they were placed in, this is our wrestle as well. Story goes on. Here's what we see in verse 8. <clears throat> Uh, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai. In other words, the king's going forward, right? Bachelor uh, Persia edition is in full effect. The ladies are coming in. Haggai is taking care of them. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and trusted to Haggai who was in charge of the harem. So here we have hundreds and hundreds of women. Verse uh, 9, look at what it says here. She pleased him and his favor. Underline that word if you're a Bible underliner. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her uh, seven female attendants selected from the king's palace, and he moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So Esther gets functionally given uh, by Mordecai to the king. She goes, she enters into uh, the bachelor Persia edition. She finds favor with Haggai. Haggai uh, gives her the best place in the harem. Story goes on. Look at what we see uh, in verse 10. Esther had uh, not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Again, we get this picture of Esther and Mordecai, not great people, Right? Not fervent followers of Jesus or fervent, passionate followers of God. Uh, every day he walked back and forth uh, near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai feels a little bad. He's kind of pimped out his uh, orphan niece. And so now he's coming back to check up on her. Uh, here's what we see in verse 12. Before, uh, before the young woman's turn came to go in to see King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil and myrrh, uh, and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her, uh, given uh, to take with her, sorry, from the harem to the king's palace. Now, commentators here, uh, they are conflicted about what exactly it was that they were prescribed to take with them. Uh, but here's what we know, that this whole scene is set up to bring much pleasure to King Xerxes. And so commentators, most of them speculate that whatever it was that the ladies were bringing to King Xerxes, like it was, it was something to pleasure him sexually. I mean, they weren't bringing a throw pillow or a yo-yo or something like that, okay? Goes on. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return into another part of the harem and into the care of Shazagaz. That's a Persian hip-hop artist, Shazagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the concubines. And she would not return to the king unless, she was, unless he was pleased with her, and he summoned her by name. So here's what's happening. Bachelor Persia edition, full effect. You got hundreds and hundreds of women getting beauty treatments for upwards of a year to, to get themselves ready they get summoned to go see the king 
They go in at night, they come out the next morning, and they bring with them something to help them uh, you know, pleasure the king in such a way that would set them apart from all the other women. Again, hundreds and hundreds of women lining up to be King Xerxes' queen. And all this is kind of setting us up for queen, or for Esther rather, Esther's big moment. So here's what we see, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge of, who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor, there's that word again, of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. So Esther goes in, she sees Xerxes, she's not sure what to bring. She asks the leader of the harem, what should I bring? What do you think Xerxes is going to like? She goes in at night, she leaves in the morning. And whatever she did with Xerxes, Xerxes really liked it. To the degree that it actually set Esther apart from hundreds and hundreds of women. And then we see this in verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she had won his favor and approved of her more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. For all the nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distribute gifts with her, uh, with royal liberty. So what happens? Esther wins. She is the winner of the uh, Bachelor Persia edition. Way to go, Esther, right? She, she performed in such a way that she set herself apart from all the other women in the harem. And so you come to a text like this, you come to uh, an incident like this, and and it's kind of confusing. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life in this moment that I'm living right now and how Jesus impacts that? Well, there's a very specific question that we need to be able to answer in order to properly answer that bigger question, which is the question we should always ask when we come to Scripture. And here's the question that we need to be able to answer. Was Esther always a godly woman? Was she always a godly woman? Like, like what do we know uh, so far from this book? Uh, we know that by the end of the book, there's, a, there's an element of Esther where she is godly. There's a desire in her, uh, and she starts to make decisions that indicate that she wants to live for the glory of God. Uh, but at this point, in this moment, like verse you know, 14, 15, 16, 17... Is she godly? I mean, what do we know? Like, I don't want to be crude, okay? I don't, I don't want to be crude. But we know that she went into Xerxes' room at night. She brought something with her that probably, again, wasn't a yo-yo or a throw pillow. And she came out in the morning. And whatever happened in between there, Xerxes really liked it. Now, keep in mind, this is, this is Xerxes who's got an entire wing of his palace that is filled with a harem of concubines, prostitutes, and other women. He'd been on Bachelor Persia edition for well over a year, sleeping with woman after woman after woman after woman. So whatever Esther did, Xerxes liked it. Not to mention the fact that Xerxes was a Persian, which meant he wasn't Jewish, which meant which meant Esther shouldn't have been even in pursuit of him. So, so we get this very real sense that whatever's going on here, that, that at this point, in this moment, Esther's not godly. She just, she just isn't. She isn't following Jesus. And we really have to drill down and answer the question, was she always godly? And, and while it seems like the answer is no, there's lots of people who have brought other options and other perspectives to the table. 
uh, really there's three main perspectives on the answer to this question. And, and I'll burn through the first two because I think they're wrong, and I'll get to the third one because I think it's the most important. Uh, the first one is this. Some, some would read this story. They would read their, their Bible, and they'd say, yes, Esther is godly. Uh, people who have this perspective tend to over-sentimentalize and sanitize what takes place in the Bible. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a movie. I, I cannot recommend it because I haven't seen it, but I did some research on it. And actually, the research I did on it was enough to make me say you probably shouldn't watch it. It's on Pure Flix, which is a thing. It's where they have like a lot of really whatever. Anyway, the movie's called One Night with the King. And they take the story of Esther, they turn it into a movie, and the story goes something like this. Esther was this, uh, this, this really devout follower of God. She desperately wanted to please God and obey God, and so she found herself in this situation where she was swept up into the palace, and she's on the Bachelor Persia edition, and she goes into Xerxes' room one night, and she's so taken aback by what all the other women are doing, she just comes and she reads Xerxes' poetry. She reads him poetry. And he hears her poetry and he falls in love and they don't have sex and they don't do anything appropriate. They just have this romantic love quest and then she goes on to be the hero of the story. Remember what I said at the beginning. There's a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. That is the wrong way. There is no way you could read this passage and land that somehow we should want to be like Esther. Esther is not someone to be held up as an example here. Listen, I'm a dad of a daughter, okay? If there's any dads of daughters out there, you do not want your daughters to be like Esther. If my daughter was like Esther, I would start training jujitsu. I would train my sons in how to shoot guns. We would go out, we would find her, we would bring her home, we would lock her in the basement for a very, very, very long time. Because Esther's not, she's not godly. She's completely walking in disobedience. She's completely walking away from God in this moment. And the problem with this understanding of the book of Esther and the character of Esther is that when we make Esther the hero of the story, we no longer need a capital H hero, Jesus. The message of Esther then becomes try really hard to be like Esther, work really hard to be like Esther, do your best to be like Esther. And what does that do? That puts all the pressure back on us to try and save ourselves and, and be the best and serve and, and, and love and, and do all the right things all the time. It's a horrible way to read your Bible. It's a horrible way to read the book of Esther. The second option, so I'd say, eh, wrong. No, Esther is not always a godly woman. The second option is this. Esther is merely an innocent victim of sexual assault. Uh, there's a whole sidebar conversation that needs to be had about the book of Esther that we probably will never get into, but there's a feminist critique or reading of the book of Esther, and, and this is one of the options that they put on the table. And while there are definitely elements of this story that are just absolutely horrible, I mean, Xerxes was a bad dude, right? He, he functionally enslaved women. He was running a functional uh, human trafficking uh, you know, scheme right out of the palace here. The reality is everything that we see in this story is that Esther and Mordecai were both willing participants. And so while we could read that into the story, we can't actually read that out of the story. So that brings me to option three, which I think is the best option because it's the one I like. And that is this, that Esther, despite her brokenness, despite her rejection of God, despite her walking away from God, is still used by God. And she gets changed by God. And God eventually redeems her and uses her for his redemptive purposes in the history of the nation of Israel. I mean, what we see at this point in the story of Esther is that she's a functional unbeliever. And what we see at the end of the story is that she's a rebellious believer. But here's the beautiful, the beautiful reality of what God does in the book of Esther is he changes her and he transforms her. He takes her right where she is at. And despite the brokenness of Esther and despite the brokenness of Mordecai and despite the brokenness of Xerxes, God still works in and through this really, really messed up story, really, really broken story to bring about his redemptive plan and his redemptive purposes. There's a word, and I alluded to it already, it shows up three times in Esther's story, and it's that word favor. The Hebrew word is the word hasad. It 
literally means God's unconditional love or his covenantal love. And here's the beautiful thing about the story of Esther. It's the beautiful thing about this moment in the story. And it's a question that needs to be asked to this text. I mean, you, you read through here and there's, there's no mention of God. There's, there's no mention of God. Why is that? It's because Xerxes, Mordecai, Esther, Vashti, every character we're going to meet, they're not even pursuing God. He's not even in their purview. And yet what? His hasad. His favor for Esther. As I've said many times, the way that God shows up in the story of Esther is not through his visible hand of miracle, but through his invisible hand of providence. In other words, God shows his grace to Esther and how he works in and through all these broken people and all the the brokenness of this moment to position her to be used by God for his redemptive purposes and so so what does that mean like what does that mean for us here's what it means and it's beautiful like it's so hope-filled for us it's that it doesn't matter that esther was not pursuing god walking like she was walking away from god god was still pursuing her he was still coming after her he was still loving her he was still moving and working on her behalf to save and to rescue her how many of you hear the story of Esther and, and this, you relate to this. You hear her story and you're like, yeah, that's me. I, I've broken commandments, right? I've slept with people I shouldn't have slept with. I've made bad decisions. I've, I've train wrecked my life. I'm useless. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I've screwed up my kids. I've screwed up my marriage. I've screwed it all up. Here's the beautiful hope of the book of Esther, of the story of Esther, of the word favor. Even though you have been walking away from God, he is still, friends, he's running towards you. His facade, his favor, his grace, it's for you. You're you're never too far gone from the grace of God. His grace is so big that even if you're like Mordecai and you pimp out your orphan cousin, even if you're like Xerxes and you live for your own glory all the time, even if you're like Esther, you're like this flaky sorority girl who gives herself up to some reality TV show, you're never too far from God because his grace is greater than your sin. Jesus' love, his death on the cross, it's greater than anything you could ever do to get yourself kicked out of his kingdom. A book that we recommend, uh, we, we recommend it to young families to read to their kids, but man, you should just buy it and read it to yourself. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She describes God's has said, his favor, his covenantal love like this. She says, God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. Do you hear that? Do you hear Jesus' heart for you? I need to close. Here's where, here's where I'm going to land this plane. One of the meta-themes in the book of Esther is King Xerxes versus King Jesus. King Xerxes, King Jesus. Who's the better king? Who has the better kingdom? What do we see here? We see King Xerxes. What does he do? He calls the women out of the villages to come to his palace and to perform for him. And if he, he likes their performance, what does he do? He keeps them. And if they don't perform well, what does he do? He discards them. He's selfish and he's self-centered. But what do we see in King Jesus? In King Jesus, we see one who loves, who's humble, who's gracious, who gets up off the throne, leaves the palace, comes to rescue and redeem us in the villages, even when we can't perform, even when we're not good enough. Uh, And I want to close by reading a story written by a theologian philosopher by the name of uh, Siren Kierkegaard. And he wrote this, it's a story, it's a parable, and it's just articulating 
It's articulating the grace of God in a story that I just think is so powerful. So bear with me as I read this. Once upon a time, there was a prince who was single and very eager to marry a lovely maiden for his future queen. And near his palace was a large city, and often he rode his carriage down to the city to take care of the various chores for his father. And one day, to reach a particular merchant, he had to go through a rather poor section. And he happened to glance out of the window and right into the eyes of a beautiful maiden. He had occasion on the next few days to return to that section of the city, drawn as he was by the eyes of the maiden. And more than that, he had the good fortune once or twice to actually meet this young girl. And soon he began to feel that he was in love with her. But now he had a problem. How should he proceed to procure her hand? Of course, he could order her to the palace and there propose marriage. But even a prince would like to feel that the girl he marries wants to marry him. Or perhaps somewhat more graciously, he could arrive at the door in his most resplendent uniform and with a bow ask her hand. But even a prince wants to marry for love. Again, he could masquerade as a peasant and try to gain her interest. And after he proposed, he could pull off his mask. Still, the masquerade would be phony, and he really could not manage it. Finally, a real solution presented itself to his mind. He would give up his kingly role, and he would move into her neighborhood. And there he would take up work, say, as a carpenter. And during his work in the day and during his time off in the evening, he would get acquainted with the people. He'd begin to share their interests and concerns, begin to talk their language, and in due time, should fortune be with him, he would make her acquaintance in a natural way. And should he come to love him as he had already come to love her, then he would ask for her hand. Friends, here's what you need to know. No matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are right now, Jesus, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you that you, you come to us in the mud and the mess and the mire. You fix us. You love us. You care for us. You're kind to us. Lord, I just pray for all of us, pray for all my friends, that they would know the reality of that love right now, Jesus, that you would just speak that into our hearts. Spirit of God, you would woo us. You would woo us to Jesus. It's in his good name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Amen, church.